Our text this morning is Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. Luke 16, 14 through 18. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Father, as we approach your word again this morning, Father, I pray that you would give us humble hearts, that you would give us hearts that actually desire to be exposed by your word in order that we might be covered by Christ and that we might love you more. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I think it's a true fact that those who love God most and love God's glory most interpret the Bible more faithfully. Affections for God affect how we approach His Word and interpret that Word. Most of us do not think we're being deceived. We think we kind of see the world clearly, that we're not blind, that we're not deaf, that we have both eyes open, both ears open, And while other people may be deceived, we ourselves are not. And yet this text, if we can ever be like the Pharisees, ought to cause us to be a little less confident of how we see and how we hear. I remember Tim Keller talking about at Christmas time in his church, uh, it would inevitably happen that a parent that sent their uh, high school senior off to college and begin to find out that their, uh, their son or daughter wasn't going to church, was starting to question Uh, different aspects of the faith and and bringing these concerns to the pastor that at Christmas time, when this student shows back up in church and he would seek them out to have a conversation to talk with them, the college student would often say, yeah, you know, I'm rethinking 
my theology and what I believe. And Keller says, here's what never happens. That freshman doesn't get out a bunch of commentaries to look at God's word and so they can faithfully exegete the text, get it right, try to understand what the original language is saying. He says, that's not what's happening. So what he says to them is, oh, you're partying a lot and sleeping around. You haven't been studying the scripture and changing your interpretation of scripture because you see the text more accurately, but rather you're changing your theology because you love your sin. You love your idolatry. Your life and my life are controlled by our motives and our desires. And when our desires are wayward, when our motives are wayward, our reasoning is hindered. We see less clearly spiritually. Wayward desires affect how we think, how we read the scripture, how we interpret the scripture. The Pharisees were like this. The Pharisees were these unique people that claimed to be the law people. We're the Bible people. We're the scripture people. No one knows the scripture like we know the scripture. And they would use the scripture to point to their own morality and their own godliness so that people would look up to them. Jesus said that they were experts in creating their own interpretations in order to break the law of God and the scripture. But they were the scripture people. They were the people looking at the text and getting it wrong and coming in contact with the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, and rejecting him. The law, the Pharisees looked at the law to prove their goodness, but here's what we must remember about the law. The law, the Old Testament scripture, the Ten Commandments, has never and will never justify a sinner. What do I mean by justify? No one will ever be able to go to the standard of God's law and say, that's why I'm getting into heaven. That's why I'm acceptable before God. Scripture is clear on this. Though the majority of people in America who would call themselves Christians think they can go to the law or the scripture or morality and prove that they deserve to be in heaven. Paul, as he culminates 
as a prosecuting attorney against sinful mankind, as he culminates this argument against man, here's what he says in Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. And he's already made the argument that the Jews are under the law, definitely. And that even the Gentiles are because the law is written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness to it. Even a non-believer knows adultery is wrong. And so what he says is, we know that whatever the law speaks, it speaks to those that are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now get this, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law indicts, convicts, condemns, exposes. It leaves us with our hands over our mouth. As God shows us what righteousness is in his law, it is not a tool of helping someone get justified. It is the tool that rips your clothing off to be exposed for what you really are. And yet the Pharisees, blind and deaf, missed the purpose of the law. Just a few more texts. Roman Catholicism is built on this idea. It's grace plus my works equals justification. But the scripture clearly says no one will be justified by the law. Romans 4.15 says this, for the law brings wrath. Galatians 3.10 says this, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. It's like going to a carnival where you have to shoot a basketball in a really small hoop that even the best basketball player in the world would shoot a poor percentage. It would be like saying, you can play this game if you want, but you got to make a thousand in a row to get into heaven. And picking up the ball and saying, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sign up for this. If you want to live by the law, you got to live by all of it. Cursed is anyone who tries to live their life by being good enough in order to earn your position in heaven. Galatians 3.21 says this, the law then is contrary to the promises are is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had for if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. So let's understand this. The Pharisees, most people viewed them as smart. 
It seems like they're crazy, right? Going to the law to prove that they're good enough? Why did they have anyone following them? What did they do? How, how did it seem reasonable? Well, to use the law in order to try and justify yourself, you must do two things. You must lessen the law dramatically. <laughs> you must look at what the law actually says and then reinterpret it, bring it way down. And then you must view yourself in such an inflated way to bring yourself way up to say, I kept it. I did it good enough. And the Pharisees were masters at bringing down the law of God and being so blind to their own immorality that they would raise themselves in their own minds so that I think they were self-deceived. They were blind and they didn't know it. So to use the law in order to try and justify yourself, you must lessen it dramatically and elevate yourself far above reality. That's what the Pharisees did. And they hated Jesus because Jesus exposed their misinterpretations of the law. The Pharisees exposed their morality or immorality. I don't know if you've ever had the nightmare where you go off to work or you go off to school and in your dream, you realize you forgot something. You forgot to put your clothes on and now you're in public and you're exposed. The Pharisees hated Jesus because in public, he stripped them naked. He showed them for what they were. As he taught and preached the kingdom. He, as he proclaimed the gospel, they were continually exposed. And when you're exposed, you have one of two choices. You can look and say, yeah, this is true. Or you can try to justify yourself and if you're going to do that, then you have to say what Jesus says is wrong. This is the context of our text. Jesus would use the word of God. He would speak the truth and he would strip them naked. Listen, listen to Hebrews 4.11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience for the word of God is living and active. Here's what it does. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The word's dangerous because it's going to expose even down to your desires of your heart. Now listen, and no creature is hidden from its sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So 
So the context is this. Let's bring it into focus as we come to this text. The Pharisees believed that they represented God. That was their identity. They got to strut through the streets saying, I'm godly. If you want to know what the law says, come talk to me and come talk to the lawyers who affirm what I do and what I teach. Their status was built up in it. They believed they were the shepherds of Israel and their leaders. And Jesus shows up on the scene and claims that he represents God and that he's declaring the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is at hand because he's there. And Jesus is teaching that he teaches the truth, but... He exposes them. So in the culture, you have two choices. (laughs) Man, this Jesus, he does these miracles. It seems like he's teaching the words of life. But if Jesus is right, then these guys are the dogs of society. They've been using us and they're immoral. And the Pharisees are looking at Jesus Remember back in chapter 15, verse 1? I think we're in the same context here. Here's what's going on. Luke 15, 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to Jesus, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So the Pharisees, who would never... Now a sinner is one who's not allowed in the temple. A sinner would defile a temple. He wouldn't be allowed in the synagogue. You certainly wouldn't want to touch one or hang out with one or eat with such a one. And so as the Pharisees watched the sinners flock to Jesus and Jesus is touching them and healing them and receiving them, they're saying, obviously, Jesus is a lawbreaker. How could Jesus be a law keeper when we would never associate with them? And here they are. You see how this self-deception went? They were so careful not to hang out with these people, and yet they're flocking to Jesus. And so what does Jesus do in that moment in chapter 15? He tells three parables. The man who loses the sheep, the woman who loses the coin, and then the prodigal son parable, and they all have the main point that God rejoices when a sinner repents. Of course I'm with the sinners. This is what makes heaven rejoice, is when they hear the truth and repent. And then last week, Jesus told the parable of the dishonest manager with the point being that the sons of this world are more shrewd in making sure their future goes well for them than the sons of light are. Jesus says, use your money for evangelism, basically. Use your money so that when you get to heaven, you'll have friends there. This is the context that leads up to this. And then, what do we read in verse 14? 
And this is under point one in your notes. Understand the deafening nature of your idolatrous desires. Here's what we read. The Pharisees who were lovers of money, that's a, that's a, that's a desire statement. That's an affection statement. The Pharisees who were lovers of money ridiculed these things. What were the things? Jesus is teaching. Remember what I said? Those who love God interpret the scripture more accurately. But those who love money and listen to Jesus teach the truth about money ridicule Jesus and say, that's not true. Their desires are driving their hearts and their life. A lot of people want to interpret this right. Spend a lot of time talking about this, reading this, arguing about this. But the heart that does that for self-glorification rather than because they love God and coming to this saying, I need to be exposed, showing, show me if there's any wayward way within me. Lord, expose me so that I can repent and you will be glorified is different. Two people wanting to use the law, wanting to look at the scripture. One can love God and the other might do it for their own advantage. The Pharisees were those who loved money and therefore didn't like Jesus' teaching on it. It says they ridiculed him. Ekmukterizo. It means they sneered. They put up their nose. They hated it. If they had loved the glory of God, what would have been their response? They would have been on their knees repenting at the preaching of Christ like the sinners were. But, since they loved their own money, they only had one other option. Look at verse 15. He said to them, you are those who justify yourself before men. See, that's your only option. Jesus stripped them naked. Now they got to put their clothes back on, right? Man, he just made us look bad. Now we got to make him look bad. He does what he does by the power of Satan. That kind of gives us some more covering. Look at what I do. I tithe mint and cumin and all this stuff. Those sinners over there. So they began to justify themselves. There's, a, there's only ever two options. Humbly come before God's word and say, reveal in me anything that is sin and, and brings down your glory so that I can repent and glorify 
you. You know, this is what happened in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, 7, what happens right when they eat the fruit? The first thing they do, then the eyes were, their eyes were both opened and they knew they were naked. And so what they do, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Who made the loincloths? Adam and Eve did. They were exposed in their sin and man did what man does apart from the grace of God. Tries to work his own salvation. Give me, give me this leaf and this leaf and we'll sow it. Well, there, problem fixed, right? Well, our relationship's still broken. I'm afraid of God. Didn't really work, but I tried to save myself. At the end of that passage, what does God do? God makes for them clothing made out of animal skins, which mean animals. There had to be a sacrifice. Something had to die to cover the sins of Adam and Eve. The only way sin can ever be taken care of is by the work of God. God must cover. That's why if you look at your notes... In bold face, the main thrust of the sermon, pray that God would expose your sin. That's a scary prayer. So that he may clothe you in his grace. And if he, if you see your sin more terrible, more clearly, it, it, it exposes the selfishness, the pride, the unbelief, more clearly, and he covers it, guess what your love for Christ does? Goes up. Guess who's glorified? Not you. Christ is. The charge of this sermon is scary. Approach your Bible praying that God's word would show you for what you really are so that Christ's grace may cover you and that you may repent and glorify God. Let me show you how this works in Joshua 7, 19. It brings glory of God to God. When does heaven rejoice? When a sinner repents. When's the party thrown? When a sinner admits and agrees with God who he really is. Look at Joshua seven nineteen. This is the middle of the story when the lot falls to Achan that someone in Israel had kept uh, the plunder for themselves. And it was Achan and here's what, we, here, here's what Joshua says to Achan. My son, give, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. How's he supposed to do that? Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. You want to bring glory to God? Don't hide your sin. Be exposed willingly so that God may cover it. That takes courage. 
You have to believe in the gospel of Christ to do that. Every biblical counseling session at the, at the beginning of the first one, we walk through the progression of what we're going to do. The first few meetings, we're gathering information, trying to understand what's going on. The next phase is scary. It's called holding up the mirror, having the counselor try to show a more clear view of what's actually happening. And I know that's scary. You know, you know, my daughter's just asked me this week, Dad, have you ever seen someone die, take their last breath? And I thought about it, and, and I said, one, yeah, one time I watched someone take their last breath when I was in Chicago in an emergency room uh, observing this emergency room in Chicago. I saw a 19-year-old kid that was in a car accident die, take his last breath. But as I was thinking last night, by the grace of God, I've watched many people die in the counseling room as the mirrors held up. It's hard to admit that this is what my heart is doing. And while I know that's hard, what am I, what am I saying? Have courage. Have courage. We can look and see it for what it really is and quit blaming your wife or quit blaming your dad or quit blaming your job or quit blaming your circumstances. We can have courage and look. Why? Because of the gospel. Because heaven rejoices when you die here in this counseling room to your self-justification. When you quit trying to pretend and argue that you better than you really are, you're freed out of the prison. You're freed up. Self-justifying never works. A conscience still remains guilty. But the person who comes before the Word of God humbly and says, expose me so that I can be covered in Christ, can sleep like a baby, knowing that God justifies not the righteous, but the ungodly. That heaven, although it's scary being exposed, is rejoicing. Why? Because God is being glorified for who he is when we as sinners don't try to pretend like we're not. It's a hard thing. It's easy for me to preach it. It's hard for me to live it. Come and critique me as a pastor. The first thing you might see is my fleshly, sinful self-justification. But hopefully, by the grace of God, He'll humble me and help me listen and ask questions to say, what do you mean? That I would remember that I can be blind and I can be deaf. 
and that I can see and admit what's true. It takes courage. And you're going to need to know the gospel if you're going to pray that God would expose any way that is wayward within you. But this is what Jesus called for. Luke 9.23, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Well, that's a nice fluffy and uh, way to say it. Let him deny himself. Let him hate himself. Let him despise himself and take up his cross and follow me. There can be no repentance where there's no hatred for your rebellion against God. We must, we won't have true repentance if we don't see the treason and how we hate the glory of God if we pretend like it's no big deal. And we all can do this. We read our Bible every day. Ooh, this verse is kind of convicting. It could mean this, though. You know, it, you know I heard someone say that it's okay to do this or that. But when that person's loving God and saying, you created me to glorify you, God, that's the person that can be exposed and glorify God for the grace. Um, look at verse 16. Jesus brings up something that might at first glance be confusing. This text, it's never encouraging when the, the beginning of every commentary on this text says, this is probably the most difficult passage in Luke to interpret. Why is Jesus saying what he's saying? The topics he brings up are difficult. There's interpretive challenges. But right after Jesus says, in, in verse 15, he said to them, you are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. He basically tells the Pharisees, you've tricked the people of Israel. They're praising you. A lot of them think I'm crazy and you're right. But just so you know, what man praises is an abomination before God. Just because they're praising you, don't think God's going to be praising you. See, it's a scary thing. Who wants to play the self-justification game if we take God's record of wrong? The God who never forgets, that could remember 20 years ago just as clearly as it's today. You might be able to try to justify what you did today. Are you going to justify what you did in high school? Or what you did in junior high? If God knows your hearts, if he doesn't just judge your actions, but the intentions of your hearts, you'd be crazy to argue that God is going to accept you into heaven because you're good enough. And then he says, the law and the prophets were until John... Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it. There's an era 
of promise. The Old Testament is filled with the disclosure of God in his law. We know what God's like by his commandments. Those aren't random commandments. God reveals to us who he is, and he gives us promises that begin right in the Garden of Eden that there will be someone who stomps on the serpent's head. It'll be from the seed of the woman. This one will bring fulfillment to God's plan. So there's an era of promise and there's an era of fulfillment. If you have promise over here and you have fulfillment over here, you have a man in the middle. And it was John the Baptist. He stands between these two eras. He's the last prophet from the Old Covenant, from the old, in the Old Testament, and yet he's preaching the good news of the kingdom. <clears throat> he's like a bridge between the two. Now, why is Jesus bringing this up? He's bringing it up because Jesus is being accused of being a lawbreaker by the Pharisees. They think this is a guy that doesn't care about the law. He's eating with sinners. And Jesus says, no, you don't understand the times. You don't understand what's going on. John is this bridge. And then on this side of the bridge is the preaching of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is at hand because the king is on earth. The fulfillment is on earth. And so Jesus says the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom <coughs> is preached. He's essentially saying, you ought not think it's weird what I'm doing. And then we get to this difficult statement. And everyone forces his way into it. So this is an interpretive challenge. And I'll try to explain it to you in a way that's not too confusing. Uh, Jesus is teaching uh, that he carries the authority and that no matter how the religious establishment ridicules him. He's saying, what I say is true. I'm preaching the kingdom of God. And then he says, everyone is forcing his way into it. And when you look at the Greek of this, you either interpret this in what they call the middle voice or the passive voice. And it can be either way. You have to look at the context to decide it either says that everyone is forcing his way into. So the people are forcing their way into the kingdom. It would, it, it would be like this. The kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing its way in. They like, these sinners are running to get into the kingdom through Christ. And they're fighting and they're scratching. 
or the way John MacArthur says it, is they're forcing their way in because this denying of yourself is a battle. Living by faith in Christ is a battle. It's dying to self. Uh, it's not viewed as coasting in, but forcing your way in. So this is the people doing the forcing. But if you interpret it in the passive, uh, what it would it would read something like this: Since the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, it is urging you to enter it. The the preaching of the kingdom is urging that you enter. Jesus is saying, enter, enter. Both are true. And I couldn't come to conclusion uh, which one I thought was uh, the correct interpretation. But the good news is, is both those facts are true. Christ is urging, even as he tells these parables, he's loving to the Pharisees as he's exposing their idolatry and their self-righteousness because unless he exposes it, they can never repent. And then in verse 17, he says this, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Imagine if you were given the challenge to make a mountain disappear or make a star disappear. Make it happen now. Jesus said it's easier to make the heavens, the stars, and the earth disappear than for the smallest little tick in the Greek alphabet, like a apostrophe, to pass away. What's Jesus saying? You're saying I'm a lawbreaker? I'm telling you that every ounce of the truthfulness of this law will stand. Either him as the fulfillment of it, the moral law continues on forever. God will never change his mind on morality. These Pharisees looked at the law and they did all sorts of crazy things with it. Long books of interpretation that basically undo what the law actually taught. And so Jesus is saying, you think I'm a lawbreaker? I'm telling you, I have the highest view of Scripture. Would God want to reveal himself to mankind through his word and fail in preserving it? You watch the History Channel. Seems like many people have this insane view. Yeah, God, God at one time gave his word, but then it got, you know, enemies of the Christian faith distorted it, and now we don't have God's word anymore. If God wanted to give his word, he'll preserve his word, and it will not pass away. Greg Bonson speaks about when Luke talks about the law, he talks about it in three ways. Here's what he says. In Luke, three themes dominate when it comes to the law. 
First, in terms of relating to God and others, the law instructs and gives moral guidance. Second, so another way Luke talks about the law, when the law is considered in terms of promise, as it is in this passage, it's, it stands fulfilled in Christ. So Jesus is the fulfiller of the law. Not only doesn't he break the law, he's the embodiment of it. He fulfills all of it. And then the third way uh, Luke talks about it is the law passed away when it is considered as individual laws or what the Jews would call the halkaloth, practices that identify a person as Jewish as opposed to Gentile, rites of circumcision, and concern about clean foods that are no longer necessary. So in that sense, yeah, those have passed away. Luke talks about those. But God's morals never change. God's promises will always be fulfilled. And we're not going to have time to even get into verse 18, but I'm going to tell you why it's there. It looks random. Right out of the blue, he throws this in. And everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. You say, well, that's random. Where does that come from? Well, here's where it comes from. Jesus is talking to people that are saying he's from the devil because he's not like us. He eats with sinners and tax collectors. And he's talking to people that have divorced their wives over and over and over again by twisting Deuteronomy 24. We'll look at that next week. I'll give you a little sneak peek into it. Hillel, one of the Pharisees' favorite teachers, taught, that in Deuteronomy 24, you were right to divorce your wife on these grounds. If she burns the food, if she uses too much salt, if you find someone prettier. And so the Pharisees <laughs> take the word of God, interpret it in, with these teachers that basically make them feel righteous as they go from woman to woman to woman, using the law of God to just flaunt their flesh. And Jesus is exposing them. That's why he brings it up where he does. Father, it's my prayer that we would not be blind to our sin even though we so often are. Lord, I pray that you would give us a greater understanding of what our heart is doing, not that we would despair, but that we would turn to Christ. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who actually believed they were getting into heaven because they're pretty good, people in comparison to other sinners. Father, I pray that what they would understand from this sermon and from your word is that the standard is your perfect law and that nobody 
is, will be justified by saying we kept it. Father, we glory in Christ, the one man who never had a bad thought, who never sinned. That that man took our place on the cross, that when we admit and repent from what we are and turn to Christ and say, that's my only hope, that we're actually justified. That the publican, the sinner that stands and beats his chest and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. Father, thank you that your word tells us that man went home justified. Because that means we can be assured that our sins can be forgiven in Christ. Lord, I pray you would use your word to give us courage to be more honest when we approach your word. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.